those two things together taught me, okay, like there's little signs along the way when you're going in the direction that maybe God is opening a door here. The floodgates may not open, but there definitely are little cracks. And every time you take a step, the door opens a little more. Welcome back to Passionate Pursuits. I'm your host, Bridget Corns. This episode turned into a two-part series with my fellow co-creator, Carmel Bojelin Caldwell. She is a visual artist, and our conversation spanned a wide range of topics, from holding tension in our personal faith, to finding joy in mourning and grief, to getting comfortable staying in liminal space and really wrestling with God as we follow our callings. I hope you'll enjoy this intriguing conversation. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by Carmel Bojelin Caldwell. She's a Haitian-American multidisciplinary artist and organizational creativity consultant based in Princeton, New Jersey. Influenced by the study of human-centered design, her abstract and expressionistic style echoes Afro-Latin Caribbean art styles and sacred themes. She is the founder and curating artist at Bofolio Studio and earned a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. And also, I am so excited to see her again because she and I just spent almost a week together in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for our business incubator, the co-creators incubator with the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. So welcome back. It's great to see you again, Carmel. See you again too, Bridget. This is exciting. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for making it happen. So Carmel and her studio, Bofolio, have a beautiful emergence story that I would love for her to share with you. And she also has a process that she's created called Creatio Divina. So I'm going to hand it over to her and let her tell the story of how all of these incredible things came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's so funny when I think about the origin story, it's I will, I always start with this. I had no intention of starting a business. It was never my dream. (laughs) My family, you know, is from Haiti. My parents are immigrants and part of the supposed American dream for them was Mm. to come to this country, make sure I have a good education, probably become a doctor, lawyer, nurse, engineer, one of these trade kind of careers and do that for 50 years and then retire Mm -hmm. that was the dream so when I went to seminary um that was a little a point of contention (laughs) for them (laughs) although they love Jesus and they're very you know the Christian you know all the things um that ain't a job like you could read your do your bible studies on the side while you're a doctor like that's do that. So um, I did end up going to Princeton Seminary with the hope of um, doing some doctoral work, possibly doing some teaching. And then during my uh, time there, my mom was diagnosed with colon cancer. And so I went down to South Florida to be her caregiver. I was her only child. And so it was my responsibility to go down and be her caregiver and something I did joyfully because I love her. I loved her. And, um, and during that year I had always painted, I was always, you know, a doodler as a child. And my 
dad used to encourage my painting, you know, he used to put my little weird looking paintings up on the wall, you know, but nothing serious because again, just like with pursuing theological education, it's not a real job. So you maybe could paint, but while you're a doctor, <laughs> while you're an engineer. So when I went down, I found that, you know, I was going to all these appointments with my mom. I was, I worked a part-time job um, at the mall. I was 25 at the time. And then I also, in order to stay as a student, I, you know, did a year-long internship at a church in downtown Miami. So I had a lot going on. I wasn't interested in reading theological books. I wasn't really interested in reading Kierkegaard or Bart. Like th that did not bring me comfort. What did bring me comfort was reading Harry Potter all over again, like all the books <laughs> again and painting and being very creative. And so that's what I did during that time was paint and be creative. And there's a story that I often share. You heard um, some of it, Bridget, um, during our week together um, but when I do my Creation Divina workshops, which we'll talk a little bit more about, I guess, I always start off with the story about creating this painting with my mom and then essentially, you know, getting rid of it, tossing it away because it didn't feel beautiful or it didn't feel worthy to be seen. And how that, for all kinds of reasons, was one of the biggest creative mistakes I've ever made in my life. So following her passing, um, I came back to seminary with the whole, I mean, I went immediately back. She passed in April, 2016. I went back to finish my, to school that summer or, you know, the end of that summer, fall. And hadn't had a ton of time to grieve because I was a caregiver. Then I was the, you know, organizer of the funeral. Then I had to do all the estate stuff. 25 years old, you know, and um, I was essentially navigating it by myself. You know, there wasn't really a ton. Family was helpful, but every family member has their own family, nuclear family issues, you know. So um, painting was really kind of my way of dealing with that, of course, going to therapy eventually. But when I got back to seminary, I was like, I don't think, I don't know if I, my goals are the same goals that I had going in that after this experience that I have coming out of it, I suddenly became a free agent in a way that I didn't expect to be. When you're an immigrant child, you work almost with this burden you should joyfully take, which is to care for your parents. You're trying to pay your parents back. So you choose careers and make decisions so that you can be financially sustainable for your family which is a burden that a lot of children who are not immigrants or who will come from more privileged backgrounds don't have to worry about. You are not worried about when you're choosing your degree as to how to care for your family. You're choosing your degree, you're choosing your career paths, you know, because you're interested or maybe you might have some pressure from your family to do something, but it usually isn't so that you can take care of them, <laughs> at least not explicitly. So when I, yeah, I got back to seminary and I was like, I want to be, do something a bit more creative. So I started to 
convince my professors if there was like a 20 page paper, can I do 15 and then submit an art, an accompanying art project. Um, so I did a few of those and I remember presenting in one and people really resonating with the art that I had produced um, for a particular paper. I think it was like an exegetical paper on the book of Job and it was about the constellations and, you know, it wrote this 15 page paper, you know, exegeting this passage. And then I did in this accompanying piece for it and presenting that and lots of folks really resonated with it and were saying, you should really be an artist. You should really, you know, be an artist. Mm. And I remember saying to God, you know, in my prayer time and my quiet time like okay like this is really cool that people really love this art I love doing art it's not something that I usually share but people resonate with it I will take it seriously when I sell a painting I'm such mm. <laughs> I'm such a baby capitalist I'm so but I was like I will take it seriously when I sell something in a few years that was my you know and it wasn't even like a like a you know testing God thing. I just, that's what my thought process was. Yeah. Literally by the end of the week, my professor who became the Dean, um, academic Dean at Princeton Seminary, Dean Lapsley sent me an email and was like, Hey, <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do with this painting, but can I buy it? I have a perfect place in my home, you know, that, you know, this wall that like needs something. And I saw your painting. And I was like, that's what it needs. And I can't quite specifically remember the pricing of it at the time, to be honest, but the pricing that feels like that's, that was the right price. You know, she was like, well, how much are you giving it for? And I'm like, oh my God, I don't really know how much I would sell. Maybe $20, you know, I'm like, yeah, that's great. You know? And she was like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult you. Like, you know, but like, would you be willing to part with it for like 450, like something like that? And I was like, I was going to give it away for 20 <laughs> Oh. So that was my first sell. Wow. She was my first Jack Lapsley, um, who is now, oh my goodness, she's in another institution now, but who at the time was um, one of my Old Testament professors and decided that she would be my first sell. And that I said, okay, maybe based on that prayer, that quick prayer that I didn't even take seriously that I said, maybe I should take it seriously. So that's the um, origin story of me being an artist and both folio fast forward, um, you know, pandemic time. I was working at Princeton Seminary as managing a grant. So a lot mm. of, I'm in the grant space a lot. Um, and I was coming to the end of my grant time. The grant was coming to an end. And I kind of had this space where I was like, okay, what am I going to do? My first rollout of seminary, I was very blessed to have a job coming right out of seminary, which was unheard of, which I didn't think was going to be possible because I didn't have a job like finals week. <laughs> and then suddenly I had a job and it was this really big job managing like $1.2 million <laughs> in this grant. <laughs> Um, and so I was getting to the end and I wasn't sure where I was going to be employed. Um, but I knew at that time that the kind of work that I was doing, the pandemic had happened. 
stuff with George Floyd had happened. A lot of those conversations were happening. I was working more and I was extremely burnt out. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I needed to take a break. I had saved a little bit of money from working and I said, okay, I'm going to go on a sabbatical. And I had done some coaching stuff on the side and some, you know, little commission work on the side and some workshop things, you know, like that was not just some other stuff that had to do with my job, but I was able to have some income on the side. And um, when I pulled, like when I finally like pulled the the lever on the parachute, you know, and decided I'm going to jump off, you know, and do this thing. I left my role like a month before the grant would be come to an end and just for my own health, <laughs> to yeah. be honest, I was, out. and I got, again, it was another one of those moments where I made this decision. I'm like, you know, God, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to trust you're going to take care of it. I have to leave this role. Even if it's just a month, I have to forfeit my mo- one month's salary to do this. And I, I went and talked to my supervisor, gave her my month long, my month notice, went to my email and I got this email from someone I don't know. Um, that was like, Hey, Carmel, you know, I've been following your art for a few years. Cause I used to always do these Lenten pieces. I followed her out for a few years and I was wondering if you would like to be a guest artist, um, you know, submit to art, art to this, um, thing that we are putting together every year by the way, here's how much it is. And it was exactly, actually a little bit more than what my month's salary would have been. And I'm like, these story, these things don't happen to me. These happen to other people. <laughs> but it's happening. And I, it was in, you know, and it ended up being, you know, a few seasons of commissions with a sanctified art resources. If anyone's familiar with mm. them, they do resources during the liturgical seasons for um, worshiping communities to have access to art and reflect artfully throughout those Lenten seasons. And so I was able to be a guest artist there. But those two things together taught me, okay, like there's little signs along the way when you're going in the direction that maybe, you know, maybe God is opening a door here. The the floodgates may not open, but there definitely are little cracks. And every time you take a step, the door opens a little more. And that's kind of how I ended up saying, maybe this might be something to like, you know, this door is opening. Maybe let me look around the corner. And eventually, Bofolio as a business came about because my tax guy was just frank, like, look, you're actually making enough money on the side that you probably might have to start paying quarterly taxes. <laughs> so you might need to organize yourself. And I'm like, so I started both Folio Studio LLC, not to start a business, mm. but to organize my financial and tax situation because I'm like, well, I need to pick quarterly taxes. The easiest way to do that is if I form an LLC because I have all of this stuff on the side and I have to pay taxes, you know? So a lot of it, it wasn't like I woke up one day and was like, I feel called to start a business. And, you know, it was the rhythms of my life at that point um, after this journey with my mom became more so like, I, I feel like I woke up, like I had this plan as an immigrant child to pursue X, Y, Z thing. If I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a 
freaking good professor and scholar and da -da 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 -da, so that I can at, at least study things I want to study, but still make money. <laughs> and then after that, it, it, those ambitions changed and it became more so like, what is my life telling me? Because I need to make choices so that I can survive emotionally and spiritually as a human being. And I still need to sustain myself. So how do I do that? And the doors start to open and I took the next faithful step. So when I formed Bofolio, something clicked. Like once I got my LLC papers, it clicked in a way like, wait, I have a business. I can lean into this. Cause I started, I didn't form it again for to start a business. I formed it to organize myself. And then once I had those papers, I was like, Am I a business owner? Mm -hmm. um, oops, sorry, I got a FaceTime call <laughs> in the middle. Um, am I a business owner? So yeah, so that thus began the journey. Um, I did at beginning was more commission work. So a lot of more art stuff and then still doing some of the on the side coaching and different stuff I was doing while I was at Princeton Seminary. And then Creatio Divina was more birthed during the pandemic it started off as a 15 minute like you know I have all of these a sanctified art commissions I don't have a big art project this Lent maybe I'll just make the community my art project so mm. I'll go on live for 15 minutes I'll do read a scripture offer some time for creating like two minutes and then I would close in a prayer and then I would do that every Wednesday during Lent and someone first invited me can you do it with my like youth group kids you know in person I was like sure and then then it was like oh my gosh like can you do it with the adults and I was like sure <laughs> you know I just the door kept like opening and then people were like that was amazing and then the more I did it the more I was like oh I have to fill 30 minutes now because it was 15 and then I'm like oh my gosh they want me to come for an hour like what do I do for an hour so then over time as the opportunity arose it, be, it started to form a little bit more systematically. Hmm. And now it's two hours and it's five movements, you know, of in the creative process. And we go from the artist studio where we create to the art show where we share to the artist table um, where we have a discussion. And it's amazing how in a year and a half, two years, something that was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll try <laughs> has become for a year, my primary source of income, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's really, yeah, that's the. That's yeah. The... I, <laughs> I have so many questions for you. So I'm going to back you up and kind of take it apart piece by piece, because I think there is an overarching theme here that sort of ties this all together. And I think if we can really take hold of it, that this is so applicable to everyone in their lives, not just artists, not just people in the sacred space, but everyone in how do we allow our lives and our callings to unfold as opposed to pushing them forward. Like what I'm feeling from you and what I'm hearing is that the biggest movements forward were either when you sort of released a prayer almost unintentionally, 
or when you just responded to a need naturally. It wasn't like I've got to create this thing and I've got to make this happen. And it was more of a surrendering and a response than it was anything else. So if we step all the way back sort of to the beginning, when you were talking about being a free agent now, do you think that you would have found that creative space and that agency otherwise, like if those events had not unfolded as they did? I am a huge believer that, um, so the short answer is yes. I do believe that in the multiverse, you know, <laughs> thinking about like Spider-Man and there's all these different Spider-Mans and there's all these different versions of decisions and lives that, yeah. um, you know, I do, I truly believe in a God and in the universe and the movement that's big enough that um, if something is your calling or something is um, meant for you that you would find it eventually. Um, but perhaps maybe our ability in our time of enjoying whatever that is, is a bit more dependent or how long we get to enjoy whatever that is, is dependent mm -hmm. on, you know, the things like circumstances and decisions and things like that. But like, eventually we may have a glimpse of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I do believe that in one way or another, I might have turned to artistry along the way. Um, however, the life that I've lived is a life that I have, you know, I, I don't mm -hmm. know anything otherwise. And with that being said, I, I think that there is a direct correlation between the circumstances of my life and, um, the person I have that I have been formed to be as a result of those experiences. Mm -hmm. I I often think about like, you know, there's very possible that I might have eventually been fed up with working very in a very 100% corporate, which theological education, if you're working for institutions is corporate. Yeah. I, no one can tell me it's not. It, <laughs> I mean, you can, but I may not agree, you know, because you know, and many, oftentimes many churches are maybe dysfunctional corporate, but still corporate in, in many ways that it's done because we look to the business world <clears throat> as examples of how we should run things. Mm -hmm. We do. And I, it can be soul sucking. Yeah. And so I think I can imagine another scenario where I would have eventually just been like, ah, you know, maybe it might've been in a more destructive way. <laughs> maybe <laughs> would have been deeper I don't know you know because you invest so much in a particular version of your world so to detach yourself from that version the the longer you're fused into it, it it's a more traumatic uh separation you know imagine if I had worked in you know in a particularly corporate theological education environment for 30 years before I became an artist and people do that all the time it's it takes a different level of shifting, mm -hmm. you know, to do that. Um, and everyone's different. But for me, I was in my 20s and I had this extremely dramatic thing happened. And very early on in my career that 
made me, you know, it just opened my eyes and made me say, oh my God, like bad things can happen to me. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. like, I, I, you know, you, ha- there's this like moment. I feel like maybe we all have, some of us have it super, super young. And, and, you know, that's, you know, we have experienced traumas very, very young. Some of us um, may not experience something as existentially, you know, uh, big until we're older but for me that's at 25 that's when I experienced it and I experienced it a lot of very much alone so I had a lot of time to think and I don't I I will say that yeah I in the world that I live in now I think yeah it has definitely made me who I am and I'm grateful for it in that way I would have preferred to experience all of this beauty and art with my mom with me. Mm. Um, But that's something to work through day by day. Yeah. Mm. So I hear this over and over and over and over pretty much everyone who I talk to on this show who has a passionate pursuit, like something that really lights them up that we could say calling, you know, that divine drive has gotten to the point of the bad things can happen to me, has gone to this really dark space. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm really curious. What was your experience of God in that space? Mm. Oh my goodness. I'm trying so hard not to give long-winded answers. Oh, go for it. (laughs) But every time I'm like, oh my goodness. Well, a lot of things happened in that season. Um, you know, especially because I was, you know, at 25, you're kind of sort of becoming an adult, but you're, you know, like, I mean, you, in past generations, you would have, I probably would have had three, five kids and been like adulting and had a house. But in the generation, you know, the millennial generation, you know, things are different in the world. And this is when I was like really feeling like I am 25. I am an adult now and I'm going to do adult things. Right. And so I had that going on. Um, I was entering seminary. So of course my relationship, I was a church ministry undergrad. Oh my goodness. Like I have thoughts on that, but I was a church ministry undergrad. I was going to be a nurse, right? Church ministry undergrad. And so I was very, theologically educated um I had read a lot um I had been exposed already to all sorts of theological arguments and perspectives and I've always been uh, I've always been comfortable with gray like you know I'm like hmm I mean you may not believe in a literal hell and you might either way we're all gonna die and find out (laughs) You know, you know, it's like, you know, is that the most important part of our faith? I mean, maybe for you it is, but, you know, so I've always been able to hold a lot of theological um, contradictions and tension. But then there's some stuff for me that were assumptions that I made just because of our the life I've lived, which we all do. And my assumption at the time, I grew up Pentecostal. And I grew up in an environment in the Caribbean Pentecostal church where we truly believe in God's activity in the world 
both in like through the through the structures that we have, whether it's, you know, politically or, you know, through the doctors, if you're sick or whatever the case is, but also supernaturally that, Mm -hmm. you know, and growing up and you hear a lot, this a lot in non the non-Western world. I think the Western world, (laughs) you know, with the enlightenment kind of no longer had, had the, the ability largely to accept these things as Mm -hmm. part of a reality, but coming from the Caribbean, or if you're from the global South context, there is a supernatural lens culturally to the world that we live in. Everything is in 3D. There is a, there is a physical world that we live in that we, uh, you know, that's super annoying that we struggle. We have to go to work. We have to do things like we have to be in that world, but there's also a supernatural world that even in this moment, there are activities happening that we don't see, we may not understand, but we know that they exist. And so part of that comes in theologically where I believe in a God that is able to spontaneously heal someone. I believe in God being able to heal someone through the doctor's wisdom, but also through this, oh my God, I don't know. Like it just went away. Like this is a miracle. You know, I, I believe, I still believe that people can, you know, get up and walk, but I also hold intention that, you know, we must care for those with disabilities and that people with disabilities are not defective and that they are, you know, so holding those tensions all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So up in, at that point, my experience in life and faith has been very like favored by God in a sense. We were not privileged. We were not, you know, um, you know, immigrant. We were, I grew up, you know, pretty much at the poverty line, but there was this sense of like, God is always providing for us in supernatural ways or something will just appear like, whoa, how did that happen? And we always attributed that to God. So, and my mom, people used to, you know, my, both my parents were very spiritual in a sense. My father was, is a little bit of a mystic. (laughs) So he's like, Ooh, he's into all kinds of things. And my mom was Pentecostal and everything. That's how we saw the world. And so, um, I, I had this sense of like a hedge of protection, right? And I still do, but I understand that the world is, now I ha- hold it in tension with, I also live in a fallen and imperfect world. I am a fallen and imperfect person. I am not exempt <laughs> from the suffering of the world. Like, it's just, I can't pray away my, you know, my suffering, you know, it, it is possible and maybe perhaps inevitable just by nature of living in the world that we live in. But I had not learned that lesson yet. I knew I knew in theory that it could be a thing. I had not experienced it because um, just the way that I saw the world. And then when my mom was diagnosed, I was very much convinced that, yeah, but she's going to be fine because we're going to pray. We're going to go to the doctor. We're, you know, we're Haitian. We have all of our teas. We have everything, you know, like we have, you know, we, the, we got all the things working for us. We got the Haitian teas. We got you know, the doctors and making sure that we, you know, do what we're supposed to do. And we got Jesus, you know, like (laughs) nothing can go wrong. (laughs) This is a test of our faith. We're going through this to learn a lesson, you know, whatever you try to theologize around it. And I used to, in the one thing I'll add it again is 
right before that summer, right before that, I was going to, I was seeing a spiritual director mm. on campus. And it was funny because she's kind of like a therapist. She's actually a um, clinical therapist, but also did spiritual direction. So it was kind of a nice fusion. And I was going to her because it was cheap. It was the cheapest therapy I'll ever do. It was subsidized because I was a student. And I was like, I've never been to therapy. Let's just go to therapy. Let's just be fun. So at the time, it was such, our sessions were so superficial. It was about like, what am I going to do this semester? What am I going? It was kind of like check-ins. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was deciding whether I should do CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. You usually get placed in like either a psych ward or a hospital and you learn chaplaincy. You do mm-hmm. a chaplaincy kind of internship. And I was figuring out what I wanted to do. And I said to her, you know, I, I really have been thinking a lot about death. <laughs> thinking about a lot of death. And I was like, you know, I feel like maybe I want to do CPE in, um, a hospital, possibly in palliative care or hospice care, because I've never personally known anyone close to me that has died. You know, by the time I've gone to a funeral, like I've been kind of removed from the person um, and death fascinated me to an extent, like, how is it possible that you were here and now you're not? Like, what does that mean? You know, like I didn't Mm -hmm. have a concept. And I said, you know, I think that I don't want the first time that I experience death in that way is with someone that's close to me because I think I would lose my mind and I would lose my faith. So maybe the best thing would be to do CPE in a hospice or palliative care setting and understand it more from those who are experiencing it and be able to offer care in that way. And that was one of our last conversations before the semester came to an end you know, and, you know, I was my first year in seminary. So I was trying to make decisions that summer, my mom was diagnosed. And then the following year she passed and it ended up being my first experience. So what was surprising to me is that I didn't lose my family. Mm. Like, I'm not going to be Christian after this. (laughs) Like, there ain't no way. But my response what happened was there were times along the journey I would pray very, I was very, I was always very honest with God. My prayers have always been conversational because at the end of the day, I always felt like, look, ain't no use lying to you. You know exactly how I feel. I'm not going to be thou you, you know, I'm not going to be thou myself to death. I'm just going to let you know how I feel. And then if I say something wrong, I ask forgiveness. <laughs> like, I don't, what else, what else can I do? And I did that. And there were several times throughout that year where I said, I don't know why you're doing this to me. I cannot believe this is happening to me. I cannot believe this is happening to me. I don't know what you're doing, but you need to make this right. I don't know how it's going to be. You need to make this right. I'm like talking to God, like you need to make this right. And then in those prayers, I would also punctuate it with, you know, there's a scripture where Jesus talks about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. And everyone's like, what is this guy talking about? Like this guy's out of his mind. So people start leaving the crowd, not realizing he's talking in metaphors, but you know, I think Jesus was trying to like troll people a little bit. I think he was trying to weed out the crowd. So he like wanted to say something that was like provocative. And then people would be like, what? Instead of, you know, the response would be like, what do you mean? But people were like, I'm not going to ask further questions. I'm just going to be out of here. Cause this guy's out of his mind. We start leaving. <laughs> That's Carmel's paraphrase version. <laughs> <Start> <laughs> 
And Peter, and he looks at his disciples like, y'all going to leave too? Like, are y'all? And Peter says, I think it was Peter. He says, well, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And that was my prayer. I was like, listen, I don't know how, I don't know how long I can do this, but right now, where else am I going to go? Wow. Where else am I going to go? I need to pray through. I need to lean into something bigger than me. And in the past, you have been faithful. Your track record has been all right with me. I don't know what the heck is going on right now. I don't like it, but where else am I going to go? So I'm going to be in this, and I don't know if my prayers are going to be respectful, but at least I'm going to pray. And that's what I did. And that's what carried me through. And it felt like having the most intense, like people talk about my fifth year of marriage was intense or whatever, but we made it through or, you know, whatever it is, or like me and my best friend didn't speak for a year, but then we got, you know, got through it. That's what it feels like. <laughs> I feel like me and God had a really rough 2016, 2017, possibly also 2018. And there's a few patches here and there where I'm like, look. I'm terrified because I didn't think anything bad can happen. And now I know bad things can happen to me. And now you want me to have faith about things. I don't know, like, you know, but for me in my life, your track record by and large has, has been pretty good. Let's, let, let's, let's keep going for today. I'll see how, if I feel differently tomorrow and Tomorrow turns into a week and a week turns into, you know, a month, a year. And I feel like I'm back in a good place in my faith. Um, but that's, but I'm still very much like, wow, I, I, I didn't lose my mind. Like <laughs> I, did. I lost it a little bit, but not all the way. <laughs> and I didn't lose my faith. Like I feared that I would. It looks, diff I in some ways I'll say, yes, I lost my faith, but it was a, a faith that was not enough to sustain me for the life that I currently live and maybe the lives that I will live going forward. So yeah, I lost my faith, but um, I didn't lose, completely lose the tether to my relationship to God. So my faith does look different. Um, and so in that ways, yes, something did die, but it resurrected in something that I think is a lot better. Um, that makes sense. It makes so much sense. Yep. Because I've, I've lived that process too. I think many times over at this point, but yeah, I would, I would, I would have to say the same thing. Like, yeah, my faith has died quite a few times, but that faith wasn't enough. What, what I say now about life, about faith, about relationships, about the things that God keeps bringing me to and the way that God keeps rebirthing things in my life is that before was good enough. Now I'm living in or better. You know, when you mm -hmm. pray and you say, God, this, this or better, this or better. Here's my vision, but I know your vision is the or better. I'm living every day in the or better now. Yes. And I it's not that. because of me. 
That's good. I, I might have to, you know, hashtag uh, Bridget speak, <laughs> you know, or something. Cause that, that was really good. I, I, the way you put it is exactly, I resonate with that. I, my faith before was good enough, but now I'm living in the, or better. Yeah. And, um, and with every season, you know, being, you know, there was a new trial by fire, being a business owner, mm. you know, and then a new trial by fire, you know, getting, getting married. Now, listen, <laughs> it's not, it hasn't, it's been wonderful. So I can't be like, oh, <laughs> three months. Okay. It's not, it's not, but you know, but that is a new, like there is a new level of faith. I mean, you know, the Bible says, you know, I should be a better Christian, so I should be able to cite it. But the Bible says somewhere, you can Google it. <laughs> you know, we go from glory to glory. Yes. You know, and there was, I feel like I'm in a new space of glory. And I'll be honest, like back to the heebie-jeebies, Pentecostal, 3D dimensional, like spirituality thing. I will say that part of the redemption of that season was that my mother did pass in peace mm. with much joy. I was able to say all the things I wanted to say. I have no regrets. Um, the way she, there was certain things. I, I don't, you know, I don't know if she had foresight or if there was something, but like the ways that afterwards were like little gems that she had taken care of certain things. So I was pleasantly surprised. Like I still felt her taking care of me. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, and I mean, I don't know how weird we wanted to get, but. Sorry to leave you hanging, but you're going to have to wait until next week to hear the second part of my interview with Carmel. We travel into some really vulnerable places with our stories about the loss of our parents. And also we discuss how our lives had to expand in order to provide the space to hold the giantness that our callings required.